Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. The 2021-22 season marks the return of the Handel and Haydn Society musicians to the stage, something that the players and singers, administration, and our audiences have been eagerly anticipating. This is, of course, a very happy occasion, but it is not entirely sweet. This season is artistic director Harry Christopher's final season in that role. There will be many opportunities during the coming season to reminisce and remark on the numerous highlights of his tenure, here on Tuning In and elsewhere. In today's episode, I wanted to take the opportunity to look forward with Harry and talk about the works he's chosen to present this coming season. Joining us also is David Sneed, President and CEO of the Handel and Haydn Society. David, welcome back to Tuning In. Oh, thank you, Guy. Great to be here. And Harry, good to have you here once more. Nice to be here. Nice to hear your dulcet tones, Guy. With pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) We're now looking forward to the start of the 2021-22 season. Subscriptions are available for sale. Many exciting things. Uh, Now that we're ready to get back on the stage, from an artistic perspective, how do you feel H&H has come out of the shutdown? Oh, brilliantly. I think what we've done in this this past year is is quite amazing. Um, all the streamed concerts, actually, I like to call them programs, don't I? Not concerts. I think they've been so informative, fabulous playing and, uh, yeah, really imaginative. And uh, all credit to you all, because I think, you know, I, I mean, listeners to this podcast will not realize, you know, just the difficulties that uh, distancing presents uh, um, for the orchestra, um, you know. As, as a string section, you know, full well, guy, you like to perform as a section. You want the person next to you to be really next to you, not not uh, two meters away. And it, it, it's hard, but uh, I think the musical results have been fantastic. And we've had a lot of listeners, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if we've actually expanded the reach of our organization. Um, I, I hope so. I, I agree with you. They're, they're difficult programs to put together, but rewarding at the end. <laughs> Um, David, how are things organizationally over at H&H? How is H&H positioned to tackle the new season? Well, first of all, your question about reach, there's no question. We've had about 175,000 viewers of our online content this year versus about 30,000 that see us live in a typical season. So uh, digital, ironically, provided an opportunity for H&H to do some things that we needed to do, wanted to do, but hadn't had the wherewithal to do before. And I think it's moved us in a uh, very positive direction for the future. Uh, to your question, I think everybody connected with H&H, uh, the musicians, the staff, the, you know, the administration, the board, the, the audience, the donors together, everyone feels a part of this organization more so than any other place I've ever worked. And I just, you didn't see any better evidence of that than this past year. It amazes me that you know, we didn't do a single live concert last year, and yet our donations were up 
It's fantastic. How does that, yeah, isn't that amazing? And even though we weren't able to perform, people wanted to support us in the hope that uh, we'll be back, which we will be back. 85% of our subscribers this year said, you know, just, just keep the subscription money. That's okay. They didn't ask for refunds or anything. I think that also is amazing. So I think the strength of the organization, the fact that our audience and our donors really feel a part of the society in, in a very powerful way, saw us through. So we are in actually really strong shape for next year. I also have to credit, you know, the board, which made the decision to keep the staff for the full season so we would be ready to get going when we could get going, which is what's happening now. And also to help compensate the musicians who couldn't perform because of COVID restrictions uh, at 65% of normal wages, which isn't 100%, but it's still, you know, uh, better than, than most. So we were happy about that. I think all of that together primes the pump for this season. Yeah. I have to say one of the most moving things about this last season for me was not just the boards taking a stand and supporting the staff and the musicians to a really large extent, but the subscribers who did just what you said, who, who donated their subscriptions when they didn't have to. And nobody had it easy these last 18 months, right? It just shows a stake that they take in the organization. It really drove that home. It's all part of the family. I think David just mentioned it earlier. You know, all our all our audience, our patrons, they they feel part of H and H, and I think that's a very special thing. And that you know that doesn't happen in a lot of organisations worldwide. Um, so you know, we're doing something right, which is great. <laughs> Can I just add one more thing? I was talking to some interns this morning who are with H and H for the summer. Unfortunately, they're going to be working remotely, most of them. But I was impressing upon them. How, what a unique organization this is and what's special about us and how great a choice they made by coming to work for H&H this year. <laughs> and, you know, they they knew that. They'd heard it. They'd heard about H&H and the culture here and and what we've been doing, and that's why they joined us. So it's getting out. David, speaking of getting out, do you think that the digital format will remain even after we return to the stage? Are we? Can we look forward to playing for people in California and Germany and Japan? Australia. Australia. <laughs> Is that something that might become part of our presentation? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Harry and I have been uh, talking about that just, just yesterday and this morning via email. Um, I, I, yes. Short answer is yes. I think that Harry really helped us find a way to make our digital presence engaging and, you know, more than just dropping the needle and playing the notes or really having a format that got audiences kind of behind the scenes into the music a bit more. And we really want to find a way to keep that going when we resume live performances. So yes, we are planning to uh, stream at least one, one performance of our concerts next season. And we're looking for ways of putting that in a format that'll be engaging and enjoyable for the audience. Mm. And I have to mention, since you brought this up, Harry, uh, our audiences may not know that uh, the programs we've recorded, even though you couldn't be here to direct them, you had a hand in every aspect and every level of the production. Uh, and much of the final product uh, is owed to you and your vision and direction. So artistic director in, in, in many more ways than just musical. 
I would say. In, a, in absentia, that's the word, is it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, it's a great pleasure doing it, you know, because, you know, I'd had a lot of experience with the BBC doing a series years ago. So I was calling on all those little aspects, you know, when we were doing this, uh, the filming and what to do. And I think the thing with digital is that anything that's a video content online, you've got to remember that you need constantly engaging with, with what's being done. So you need constant images, pictures. It's not like just sitting in a concert hall and, and soaking in the music. Uh, right. It's a completely different experience. And those BBC productions are, are so moving. One on Brahms, Monteverdi, uh, uh, yeah. so, so beautiful. Bruckner, really interesting. Yes. Harry, you're coming back to Boston for three sets of concerts. The first will be of Handel's Messiah. Now, you've conducted every Handel and Haydn Society Messiah during your time here and a couple before, and that provides some remarkable vantage points that I'd like to discuss on a future episode. But today, I wanted to talk to you about the other two programs and specifically what draws you to the music that you'll be conducting. And I'd like to start with the January program, our Concertmaster Aislinn Noski will be returning for Mozart's first violin concerto, and you'll conduct Haydn Symphony Number no. 103 and the Theresien Mess, or the, uh, the Maria Theresa Mass. I'd like to ask you first about the symphony. Um, what is your history and connection to this work? Does it hold any special meaning to you? Oh, very little history. I, I was trying to rack my brains because I know I've conducted it once before, and that was many years ago. It was about 20-odd years ago with the BBC Philharmonic, so a modern symphony orchestra. Um, but, you know, Guy, I, I have to thank H&H for introducing me to, to Haydn because, quite frankly, I knew very few symphonies. Of course, I knew the creation really well, um, but it's it's you that have really inspired me to um, to sort of look into Haydn a lot more. And, you know, I go back to, there was a very famous conductor, I don't know whether it was Lauren Bazel or somebody like that, who was asked once, why don't you perform Haydn? And he said, well, it's too difficult for orchestras. And, <laughs> and I remember that with the BBC Philharmonic. I remember the leader of the orchestra saying to me, he said, you know, Harry, we should do a Haydn symphony every month just for discipline, because mm. it's really hard for the strings. And I've loved what we, we've done, all the Paris symphonies, we did the early, the Matin, the Midi, Le Soir, and now we're on to the London symphonies, and it's it's just been the most phenomenal journey. So you're bringing a piece that you've only conducted a few times. How do you approach studying a work like this? What, what do you hope to bring to the first rehearsal and also hear from the orchestra in the first rehearsal? Well, when I look at these things, I, I, I really go back to what Arnoncoy always said. He always mentioned the fact that Haydn, when he went out for a walk each day, he took a notebook with him. He dropped down things about nature, about people. And I noticed once there was a wonderful YouTube clip of Arnoncoy conducting. And I was absolutely cosmic because I thought, you know, oh, here's this great master doing exactly what I like to do. It's speaking in imagery the whole time. And that's, I think, how we bring the best out of, out of the Haydn we play. Because, as you know well, I don't get bogged down in, in incredibly technical things about form and analysis of, of the piece. We try and get into the emotion and the mood of it. And with this particular symphony, it's one of the longest, actually, and of course got the most daring opening. I think it is unique to have a drum roll as the, as the opening to a, a symphony. But, you know, what I love about this symphony is so much of it's based on folk folk tunes. The second movement, which has this incredible set of variations, which is inspired by, by folk music. And then you get to the extraordinary, extraordinary finale. He uses only one basic theme. And of 
creates a fantastic movement from it, you know, that you get the horn calls at the very beginning, and then the horns accompany these melodies and various transformations through the movement. I mean, he's just a genius. So Harry, your Haydn to me is completely revelatory. Uh, I guess I'm curious, when you say somebody like Moselle says that we don't do Haydn because it's difficult, what, what makes Haydn difficult for the musicians, for the string players? Well, it's always difficult. It is slightly easier when you're playing on period instruments. I think particularly for the strings, there's, a, there's an alacrity that they can get around the bow and the strings much quicker. I think first and foremost is getting into the style of it. You know, we have the time at H&H &H to get into the style of Haydn. And this is what most symphony orchestras across the world do. They just don't have the time when they're performing Strauss, Stravinsky, Schoenberg, um, Burt Whistle and then have to do quite a lot of Mozart and Haydn. It's sort of unfair of them to expect them to, to really latch into the, the appropriate style. So that is it first and foremost. And I think that's because we've done a lot of Haydn, we just get better and better at doing it. So that's, that's a simple reason. And actually the fact that we, we started with a lot of the earlier symphonies, so we, we've sort of grown through Haydn's career with him in a way. Hmm. Yeah. I think that you know the, the use of period instruments with good players <laughs> takes care of many of the things that challenges a large symphony orchestra that has many more players than Haydn would have employed using instruments that are uh, quite different from what he was accustomed to. But you still have to take it further. And one of my favorite things about working on Haydn with you, Harry, and also with Aislin, who's a, a real Haydn aficionado, uh, aficionada, maybe, mm -hmm. is that the, the emphasis you both put on gesture. And I feel like that's the next step, you know, getting the thing to sound lithe and transparent, all the things we appreciate about period instruments and Haydn that are illuminated by these performances, those are a starting point, they're not the end result. The fact that you mentioned the folk tunes, you know, folk tunes mm -hmm. aren't meant to be played by people who went to conservatory. There's a certain roughness to them, right? Folk musicians, I mean, many of them are highly, highly trained, but the, the origin is people of the land, right? And um, knowing that and, and taking the, the, the folk gestures that Haydn puts into his music is something that I'm so looking forward to. And it's every time we've done a Haydn symphony, that's been an emphasis and I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? There's so much articulation in Haydn, and it's great that we at H&H, &H, we observe all of it, but actually all this articulation doesn't have to be the same every time. And I think that's what you were mentioning, Guy, when you're talking about gestures, that everything is, is a slightly different gesture. That's what makes the minuet and trio such fun because the, there are gestures we just have to conjure up this fantastic imagery of maybe you know there's a there's an old man who's two left feet when he's dancing so there's lots of lots of things we can we can dream up uh, i think that's what makes it fun so the mass that you'll be conducting in the same concert brings us to a realm in which you are justifiably renowned and that's mm -hmm. the direction of choral music what draws you to this work and why did you choose this mass because we're looking at the the London symphonies, and we've just done, uh, we did the Harmony Mass with, with Symphony 99. We did the Nelson Mass with uh, the Military Symphonies. So Symphony 103 was written in 1795, the Theresa Mass 
1799. So these are all our stage of, of Haydn's life. It's just great to be able to do this one. I have to confess the Theresa Mass I have never done before. And that's the beauty for me, because honestly, so much with H&H, particularly the classical repertoire, I've never done before. The bonus, in a sense, is I'm coming to it with a very fresh approach. Um, I hope it's not a naive approach, but it's a fresh approach. So I'm not, I'm not influenced by other people. And actually, if we go back to my singing days, I never ever sang the Teresa Mass. I'd actually sung the Nelson Mass, but uh, not the Teresa one. But I'm fascinated by it because, you know, like the Nelson Mass, it was composed um, in tempore belli in the time of war. But we don't get any hint of the excessive drama of the Nelson Mass. This is much more intimate and lyrical. For Haydn and later Haydn, it's quite a conservative um, orchestration. It's got uh, clarinets, trumpets and timp, plus, of course, all the strings. And what's unusual about it is actually the quartet of soloists are very much a quartet. There's no one voice that is sort of uh, king or queen bee. I love the fact that this will be your first time conducting it. feels like we can learn it together. Yeah, and really respond to what we're hearing and come up with something special, which I'm certain we will. Um, David, you've worked with Harry since you joined H&H in 2015. And before that, you gained experience working with and observing numerous other conductors, many of them very renowned. What do you find noteworthy about Harry's approach to directing? I wouldn't talk about just his approach to directing. I think it's Harry's entire approach to music and music making and the concert experience that I, I've found just so exciting to be around. I sense from him a different kind of vision for what music making should be. You know, I worked in a lot of large symphony orchestras who, you know, play 48 weeks of concerts a year, year after year after year. And I think there can be a tendency to kind of just, the purpose of music is to play the notes and to play the music well, and, and that's it. A concert is defined as being great when everything was played as it's written on the page. And in Harry, I find a totally different aesthetic, which is the purpose of the definition of a successful concert is not, did we play everything perfectly, but it's, did we engage people? Did we excite people? Did we connect with them? Did we say something that, that really sticks with them afterwards. And I think that really permeates the entire organization from my point of view. There really is, I think, an emphasis on turning the audience on to the music and the art and being relevant to them and making the music relevant in the way that we make, in the way that we perform it so that it matters and connects. And I think that emphasis on relevance permeates everything that we do, education program, uh, fundraising, ticket sales, touring, you name it. I really do feel like H&H's personality and what we talked about at the beginning, how the audience and the donors are the, are part of the organization, really comes from this approach. I'm wondering, Harry, did I describe your approach to music at all correctly? Or? Well, yes. I mean, you know me, I'm, I'm not a maestro in the in the sort of classical sense. As you say, music is about, you know, testing everybody's emotions and trying to bring that out and making sure that everybody on that stage is thinking in the same way and actually performing and above all communicating. You know, I go way back to when I very first came and I would look at the chorus and I'd say, look, all I see is I see this blanket in front of you. I, I see you working hard, but you're not communicating with the audience. You know, you've got to use your faces. You've got to act. And there was this sort of slight resistance initially to actually be themselves. And I think actually that's the same for the orchestra. For me, it is about freeing up all the musicians, singers and instrumentalists. We've got wonderful artists on stage. 
they need to show their own personalities and not be um, told what to do. I, I just want people to to be inspired and inspire everybody else around them. And I think that's what we achieve. I mean, rehearsals are fun. Concerts are fun. We don't do the same thing twice. And that's really important. And I remember that very early on, there's people writing in their copies and I'm me saying, look, what are you writing all that in your copy for? You know, I, I'll probably do something completely different next time. Uh, so, you know, and so it's the awareness and everything. And above all, it's the people who are listening to us, be it on CD or in the concert hall or these days on the, when we're streaming things. They're the most important people. Yeah. And so I think getting back to your question about directing guy, it also gets to Harry's leadership and vision in hiring. I mean, we have an orchestra now and a chorus that really embody, epitomize, evoke the vision Harry has musically. You know, there's other organizations where there's kind of a disconnect between the perspective of the musicians, the perspective of the artistic director, and the perspective of the audience. It all seems to come together here in one piece. That reminds me, Harry, I could just tell one short anecdote. I was talking to Michael Tilson Thomas once. This is a long time ago, right when he had just started San Francisco. And he told me how after he got appointed, he had been invited to a meeting of the orchestra committee. And he said, I'll attend on one condition that you change the name of the committee from the orchestra committee to the performers committee, because you have to think of yourselves as performers and not just, you know, note players. And Guy, you know, how does all this permeate you and, and your fellow musicians? How do you process this vision Harry has for how the music should be made? With great pleasure. It's engaging. It's also confronting. There are 30 or 40 or 50, maybe 60 people on stage and everybody has had a day and you don't know what people are bringing with them to rehearsal. And of course, they are allowed to bring whatever is going on with them. But if you're caught not available to this sort of music making and this vision, then it's extremely confronting. I don't mean that Harry yells at you or something. You don't get in trouble. You get a look. But it's, well... Yeah, once upon a time, there, there may there may have been looks at some point, but we're so accustomed, I think, to the expectation that now it's not just Harry's expectation, it's the expectation of everybody sitting around you too. We've really grown up over the last 13 years into what we are and, you know, you really feel it and you have a choice to make. You need to put those things on hold and attend to the work at hand or it feels like phoning it in. And in a group like ours, with the music that we play and with the approach of the musicians on stage led by Harry and all the way down the orchestra, and chorus, it's a very difficult thing to do, to phone it in. You can't leave without feeling like, uh, well, frankly, like a failure if you do that. And so it's a real gift to be challenged that way. And actually, one thing that each of you said brings me to my next question, something I've been meaning to ask for a long time. Harry, you mentioned uh, acting. Uh, you know, we often hear of music being described as being a language, Right? And one of the most significant and, and crucial principles that I've learned these last 13 years, which has shaped almost everything I do on the cello, is the origin in language of so many of the choices that I can make as an instrumentalist, like a choice of articulation. I mean, even the word articulation comes from language, you know, phrasing, same thing, the intention and the sense of drama behind the notes, etc. You've been the most active and present advocate of this way of making music, especially in vocal music. This may sound like a matter of course, but for singers, the way you choose to shape a word, let alone a phrase, has an enormous effect on the presentation. 
And for instrumentalists who often double the singers in the music that we play, uh, if we're listening, we can gain insight into how to approach our part in a way that the composer intended and that makes sense for the entire group, the chorus and the orchestra. Now, not everybody places this text-centric approach, language-centric approach at such a central place or insists on it as adamantly as you do. So I suppose there are many different approaches, but this one, well, it, it speaks to me quite literally. So I'm curious, where did you become convinced of this to such an extent? And were there people who modeled this approach to you? And if so, were they necessarily all musicians? Oh, that's a really tricky one. I mean, it's a no-brainer, really, to me. You know, music's all about text. I mean, vocal music, obviously, is. And as you've just said, you know, when we're doing, a say, a Haydn or a Handel oratorio, then instrumentalists have to play the words as well and really be really conscious of them. When I was at Oxford, I sang in very early days of various groups like the Talis Scholars, and I was in the Clarks of Oxford and things like that. And I suppose it comes from the sacred music I was doing that when I formed my own group, the 16, I, I just thought... We're performing all this stuff. It's in Latin. Nobody speaks Latin these days. 90% of the audience don't understand the words of the mass or a motet. So we've got to be communicating through the words, through the shape of the words, the emotions we're trying to convey. And so it, it grew and grew from that. And then also, again, very early days, the 16, worked a lot in, in Europe with various people like Tom Koopman, etc. It was all fantastic. And I learned a lot about style of music. But what I felt with so many groups that were out there that there was no journey from A to B in a piece. There was no feeling that when the overture of a Handel Oratorio started that there was an idea of how the piece was going to end, starting at the Symphony 99 of, of Haydn, that there was continuity going through these movements and the way we use the silences. Silence is so important. You know, for vocal music, I hear so many young conductors in the solo rehearsal and they say it's all about the text. And then they don't mention the text for the next three hours. And, you know, you think, well, what are you, what are you doing? Because as you say, it is all about shaping that phrase, knowing where the natural word stresses are, knowing how important an, an unimportant word can be. You know, we can say the word the, the, the king, the thing. If it's going to something that's really important, it needs an emphasis. So it's all things like that. And I suppose it's just grown and grown in me through hearing and actually singing myself too many concerts and recordings where the sound is lovely, but it's actually not doing anything to me. It's not digging at my heart. And if it's penitential music, it must really tear you to shreds. And if it's joyous music, you can really laugh. That's what we do at H&H. You as a cellist guy, Hazen, of course, responding to everything. And it's infectious. The choir as well, as soon as they engaged with the text and with the music, everything comes to life and we can be really enjoying ourselves. And, you know, keeping it human. I think that's the other thing that H&H do well. There's a real humanity on the stage. There are no egos. It's a really human approach. And that's what it's all about. And then having a good number of beers afterwards, you know. <laughs> you know. It's just a great pleasure. <laughs> Fantastic. And a great pleasure is exactly what I think about when I think of Haydn's creation and many, many other things. First of all, speaking of language, what language will our audiences be hearing this work sung in? Well, we're going to hear it in English, we'll um, in English. because that was the first times that H&H &H performed creation or parts of it way back in 1815. 
and then subsequent performances were in English. He was believed to have said that actually he wants people to perform it in the language that is appropriate to their country, English or German. And, you know, it's such a great piece. It works so well. I mean, we don't really know where the libretto first came into this format. It's possible there's some sort of theory that actually it was present during Handel's time and that he was wanting to do it at some stage. But um, we toy about with a bit of the English text. There are certain bits we slightly change to make it more vocal to go with the phrase and the notes. Yeah. So here's a work that I know you've done many, many times. Where do you draw inspiration and motivation for your performances of this work? And, and what do you hope the listener leaves with? Well, a lot of it stems from the soloists. You know, depending on what the set of three soloists are, I do use the sort of only three soloists rather than the sort of idea of using five. The soloists are so crucial and their interpretation and, and their thoughts will sort of maybe alter my overseeing view of the whole piece. But it is all about word painting. Orchestrally, the word painting is just fantastic. You've just got to get total joy. And, and as players, I mean, you know, you're smiling all the time. <laughs> uh, it's just fantastic music. For the chorus, I suppose it's in terms of, if you compare it to the big Handel oratorios, you know, the chorus is in effect probably has a simpler role, but still a role of great presence and energy. And they need to maintain that throughout the whole piece. And that going back to that acting side of maintaining energy the whole time, even when you're not singing. And the same for the players, maintaining that through you know the wonderful woodwind solos we hear and uh, everything that's going on. It's just a great, great piece. And I was so pleased when we did it. Gosh, I can't remember how many years ago when we recorded it. You might remember, Guy. 2015, I think. 2015. 2015, so. right. Well, that particular recording from live performances we did, I think is certainly my finest hour with H&H. &H. And, I, and I think oh. as a whole um, organization, uh, I think everybody was on fantastic form. And I just remember the end of it. Everybody was just smiling away. And that's that's what it should be. There was Andrew Schwartz on his bassoon solos, you know, just this little twinkle in his eye at the end of it. And, you know, for me, that's what it's all about. Yeah. So, Harry, you, you mentioned soloists. We have this year, for the performances, April 29 and May 1, we have Joel Harvey, Rob Murray, and Matthew Brook. Can you speak at, at all about them and why you chose them and how they are going to influence your approach to the work? Yeah. They're three sort of household names with H&H, &H, aren't they, really? I mean, Matthew Brook has been over so many times in my tenure. Matthew's on our recording of the creation He's an unsung hero because Matthew actually was somebody that if he hadn't taken up singing, would have taken up acting. And you really get that from his singing. It's it's just so brilliant. And his word painting is just absolutely brilliant. Different colors he seemed to achieve. And he's also a phenomenal team player. He's somebody that when he stands up to sing, orchestra, chorus, everybody, and listeners in the audience, they're attentive. They are solely on him. Rob Murray, of course, another very old friend of mine, Rob did Jephthah for us. And uh, Rob is also incredibly texted. I think that's first and foremost, what this trio of soloists, Joel, Rob, and Matthew, they are all text-led soloists. You can hear every single word they sing. It's not affected. It's totally and utterly natural. And Joel, I, I have to confess, actually, I've discovered her in the UK and not the US. Some years ago, she came in at very short notice for another group. And uh, one of the players phoned me up and said, you've got to hear this young lady called Joelle Harvey. She's absolutely brilliant. And I did exactly that. And I used her in my recording of Handel Saul here in the UK. And of course, she's a household name with H&H. With &H. Joelle is, again, one of those performers. She just stands there 
and the audience are just captivated by her. She she uses her face so well, and of course, you know, the, the sounds she produces are, are glorious. So, you know, this is a really special team of soloists, and my final concert, these are the three people I wanted on that stage with me. David, I have a question for you. Harry's spoken about what a glorious work the creation is. You know that. We've spoken about the soloists, the group that we'll be presenting. But, you know, certainly before I joined H&H, I had never heard the creation. I think a lot of people, even professional musicians, don't know it. And if they do, don't regard it as the masterwork that it is. Are there any challenges in frankly, in selling this work? I mean, it's a big gamble. It's an entire concert, right? It's one work. And I'm curious if you are ever faced with challenges getting people in the hall for this kind of work. I think in the standard symphony orchestra world, the modern orchestra world, Haydn and Journal, as we spoke of earlier, and their major works of Haydn are, are rarely done. I think that Harry, over his tenure here, has built a, a strong brand, if you will, for orchestral, choral, spectacular pieces like this that I think Boston audiences know uh, he does better than anybody else in the country. So I think there's a real trust that for Harry's final concert, he's ironically chosen for his closing, a piece about openings, beginnings, but also building on 2015, that this is going to be a very, very easy sell because it's going to be historic. Harry's hand-picked favorite piece for his final week, as well as an exhilarating experience. So in this case, I'm not worried about selling this concert. I do have to say that when I look at the season overall, and you guys can disagree, there are so many big, epic orchestral choral pieces going on. Of course, Messiah, the Mass we talked about earlier, Johnny Cohen's program, the Bach Magnificat, Vivaldi Gloria. It is a season, I think, of more choral orchestral masterworks than I think you're going to hear most anywhere else in the country. Certainly most symphony orchestras will not perform this much choral work in a season. So I think for where we are right now, coming back after the year that we've had and Harry's final season, this is a really standout year, I think, nationally for us. Mm. Well, we're definitely coming back. There's no, <laughs> yes. no mistaking that. <laughs> Well, David, I'm very grateful for your input, and I thank you for all you do in steering the ship and for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And Harry, you've left me even more excited for the coming season, and I so appreciate the insights that you've shared. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Guy, and I can't wait to see you all. Likewise. Harry Christophers is Artistic Director of the Handel and Haydn Society, and David Sneed is President and CEO of H&H. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandhaydn.org slash podcast. There you can listen to previous episodes and find supplementary materials to this one. I hope you'll join us for the next episode.